0: Listen to this. A console upgrade turns into a lesson on the sonic quality of tracks by Ike Zimbel, read by the author. One of the other things I do for a living is repair and upgrade professional audio equipment, mostly on the recording studio side of the business. One day around 2003 or so, I got a phone call from a studio owner, a somewhat eccentric and reclusive guy with an unusual request He prefaced it by telling me that he and his engineer felt that lately, their console, an MCI-628, hadn't been sounding its best, and then went on to ask me how I felt about upgrading it by installing a pair of mix amps from a vintage Neve console. Well, I'm not a big fan of the Franken-console approach for a number of reasons, and I told him as much. But, I added, I know the MCI-600 series desks quite well, and they have a number of issues that, once resolved, can leave them sounding quite good. So, I suggested, how about I take care of those and then we could talk about doing the mod he requested if he still felt it was needed. He agreed to this course of action. At the end of this conversation, almost as an afterthought, I added that we should not schedule the work until after they had finished their current project and before they started their next one, as the results can be quite audible. Getting started. Having agreed to this, we set a date, and a few weeks later I drove up to the studio. The setting was a century-old farm about 40 minutes north of Toronto, with the actual studio set up in an old stone barn. It was still a working farm, and as I pulled into the yard the first time, I remember looking over at some farm equipment and thinking to myself, hey, if I had to, I could fix that too. This was because I'd spent my teen years on a farm and had found I had a knack for maintaining the equipment. The thought gave me a burst of confidence for the project that lay ahead. In the barn studio, I met Walter, the engineer, who proceeded to show me the console. The desk was in the condition I had expected it to be in, and after I took a few measurements, we powered it down and I got to work. I should offer a bit of background information here. In the late 1980s, I had some steady, part-time work with a recording studio in Toronto. This studio also owned a remote truck, and my original in was through driving the truck, something the owner was not licensed to do. My audio and electronics background then led to maintenance duties, and eventually to some live-to-air mixing and recording work. When I first got involved, around 1986, There wasn't quite enough gear to outfit both the studio and the truck for multi-track recording, so the studio console, an MCI-636, and tape machine, an Ampex MM1200-24, would roll into the truck for live multi-track gigs. The rest of the time, there were various live-to-two-track rigs that lived in the truck until they were finally replaced with a 58-channel Neotech Elite and a second MM1200 in early 1987. The MCI-600 series was the successor to the very successful 500 series, the desk behind a lot of the Miami sound, as well as a myriad of 80s hits. Like many studio consoles, the 600 was basically a good design, but came with a few defects that would present themselves after the console had been in service for a while. The most audible one of these was premature failure of the electrolytic capacitors that were used for interstage coupling of the audio signal. This would manifest itself as a progressive loss of low-end over a period of months and even years, but eventually would affect the high-frequency response as well. In practical terms, this would show up in different ways, but a common one would be that an instrument that was pan-center, like, say, the kick drum, would appear to pull to one side of the mix. Why? There was a pair of capacitors on the output of the pan-pot on each channel. And if these caps failed at different rates, then the low frequency response on one side would be better than the other, causing the kick to appear stronger on the good side. Another common point of failure, although this one took much longer to appear, was failure of the IC sockets. This was a metallurgical issue, with the spring contacts in the socket eventually just losing their grip on the IC pins. In a really bad case of this, you could just flick the chips out of their sockets with your fingertips. Working the process. Armed with this knowledge, I got to work on the desk, dealing with the capacitors in the channel strips first. The purpose of these caps was blocking DC current from flowing between stages. For example, mic preamp stage out to EQ stage in. But one of the things we had found back in the 80s was that in some cases, there wasn't much, if any, DC to block. So the capacitors on the output of the pan pot, for example, could safely be replaced with a couple of pieces of wire. This was one of the operations that I did on all of the channel module. I don't remember the exact timeline, and I feel like this must have taken more than a one-day visit, but eventually I got through the channels and started in on the master section. This work was of a more experimental nature, as I didn't have an exact playbook in mind. However, one thing I always do first when upgrading a console is the monitor module. Note that things in the studio world have changed dramatically since this took place, especially with the advent of a standalone monitor controllers and b folks often only using parts of large format consoles like the preamps and EQs. But at the time, the monitor modules was what the signal went through on its way to, you guessed it, the studio monitors. The reason I deal with the monitor module first is so any changes, hopefully improvements that are made to other parts of the signal path, can be heard clearly and validated as to whether they are worth doing or not. When that was done, I moved on to the master module, which supports the mix amps, aka summing amplifiers, the master fader, 2-mix insert, send, and return, etc. And here was where the fun started since I was there to get the most out of this stage and hopefully ward off having to go through the exercise of grafting the mix amps from a completely different console into this one. As I mentioned earlier, I don't like doing this for a few reasons, such as, I will not fit any part onto a module that can't be safely and reliably supported by the existing real estate. In this case, the Neve parts required a completely different power supply, positive 24 volt DC versus the plus and minus 18 volt DC that the desk ran on, and they were big and heavy, so it would have been a real challenge to do this modification in a reliable, serviceable manner. That meant the mission was to get the most out of the existing circuit design. This was accomplished by replacing capacitors first, sometimes with a piece of wire, sometimes with the larger value, i.e. higher capacitance, and sometimes with a different type of capacitor, such as film, instead of electrolytic. We did this incrementally, with Walter and I taking a few minutes to listen and evaluate the changes after each step. After dealing with the capacitors, I moved on to trying different amplifiers, aka ICs, or chips. I should mention that this required me to power down the console each time I removed the master module, something that required numerous trips to what I nicknamed the Spider Room, the base of the disused stone silo next to the control room. It had a very small access door and a lot of cobwebs once inside. I tried to limit my time in there. As I worked through this process, I was listening to a track on a CD that I'd recently acquired. I hadn't given the CD a supercritical listen, having in fact listened to it mostly in my car, a Ford Focus with factory stereo, but I liked the song and I liked the performance, so that was that. Until I got to the mix amp. On an impulse a few weeks earlier, I'd picked up a couple of chips that I hadn't heard of, but had been intrigued by the description on the package, which read, Ultra High Precision Dual Op Amp. This was just the tail end of the era when you could walk into an electronics store and find parts in individual packages with labels like that, similar to a Radio Shack, although it wasn't one of those. In any case, I liked the idea of that ultra-high-precision bit, so I thought, let's try this. When I powered up the console again, checked myself for spiders, and put the track on, it did not sound good. Not distorted, but not good. I was pondering this, thinking about the possibility that this particular chip change was going to have to be reversed while still listening to the track, when Walter, who had been doing various maintenance day projects around the studio, walked back into the control room. He immediately made a face and said something to the effect of, Whoa, what happened? I told him I wasn't quite sure, but I thought that we should check a few more tracks to see if we could isolate what we were hearing. Walter suggested a Beatles compilation CD he had there. Well, you can't go wrong with the Beatles, right? Except, this was back in the day when all CD reissues were not created equally, and depending on when they were released, the mastering for the CDs was not optimal. I was aware of this, so when the Beatles didn't sound good either, I said, let's try something else. We next went to a CD by some 80s rock band, and it didn't sound too good either, but again, I felt like it could have been mastered for vinyl and poorly transitioned to CD. That said, I was just about to concede defeat when I remembered that I had the CD that I'd been using as my PA check tracks for the last few years. That CD was Ben Harper's Welcome to the Cruel World, circa 1995, and when I put it on, our jaws dropped. It sounded stunning. Not quite ready to celebrate on the strength of one album, I remember that a colleague that I'd worked with in 2000 had regularly used a Ricky Lee Jones track to check his work. We've lost touch, but last I knew this person's title was Head Scientist at the audio manufacturer he ended up working for. I didn't have the same album that he used. It's like this, specifically track one, Showbiz Kids, but I had an older CD, Traffic from Paradise, from 1993, and I reasoned that Ricky Lee Jones hopefully had the same high production values for it as for the later album. I put on track 7, Jolie, Jolie, and our jaws hit the floor again. Looking back some 20 years later, I'd be hard-pressed to say exactly what differences we were hearing, but I can say having done more of this work since then that one thing that really stands out with this type of upgrade is the reproduction of instruments with a lot of high-frequency transient information, such as hi-hats, shakers, and tambourines. If you really listen to these sources on recordings, you'd be amazed at how often what we're really hearing is closer to white noise that our brain is identifying more by the figure than the sound. For example, listening to, say, a hi-hat recording, you might hear the ch-ch-ch and go, oh, that's a hi-hat. But listening to either the live hi-hat or a well-recorded, well-reproduced playback, where you can actually hear the metal of the cymbals and the wood of the drumsticks, you realize that the ch ch is the figure that the drummer is playing, but there's a whole lot more going on with the instrument than just that. Finishing it up. So, what happened with the first track that I was playing? Well, essentially, the signal path in the MCI became so revealing that it just sort of took the mix apart, unveiling all of the flaws in the recording in the process. With the Beatles CD, it highlighted the flaws in the mastering manufacturing chain, since we can't really fault the original recording, can we? Again, I hadn't really subjected that first CD to a really critical listen. And while nothing really jumped out at me, I was prepared for the idea that there might be issues with the recording. This was mainly because one of the senior people, a major contributor to the development of the Ampex line of tape recorders, on a forum I hung out out on at the time called the Ampex List, had flagged some issues with it. On a casual listen, I hadn't noticed anything in particular, and I actually remember wondering what he was on about when I listened to it in the car. Sadly, I lost track of that disc after that day as I'd like to go back and listen to it and try and quantify this. Anyway, suffice it to say that after hearing two good tracks on the newly upgraded master section, Walter and I signed off on it and moved on. The last thing that I did that day before heading home was tweaking the levels on the main studio monitors, a classic pair of 15-inch Tannoy models powered by a pair of Macintosh Block amplifiers. The amps had a screwdriver-adjusted level trim on them, heavily covered with masking tape notes saying to never adjust them. I took some measurements and of course they were not matched, so I fed a 1K tone to them from the desk and then with an AC voltmeter, adjusted the output levels to match to my usual plus or minus 0.01 volts. About a week later, I was back at the studio doing some remedial work replacing some failed switches and similar tasks that I either hadn't gotten to or didn't have the parts for on the first visit. After about an hour of this, I asked Walter if they'd mixed anything on the console since I'd done the work. He replied that they had and proceeded to press play on the half-inch mastering deck. I happened to be sitting in the sweet spot at the console where the engineer sits, and when the track started with a bowed double bass, I remember feeling the hair stand up on the back of my neck as I heard literally every hair on the bow go over the strings. The track that followed sounded amazing. Quite pleased, I went back to work. After a while, I got the itch again, and I said, hey, how about another track? Walter obliged and pressed play again. Well, what came out sounded like mud. The bass was muddy and indistinct, The singer sounded like she was holding her hands over her mouth. Awful! I turned around to ask Walter, What the? and saw that he was sitting there with a very puzzled and deeply concerned look on his face. What happened? I asked again. At which point, Walter explained that both tracks were from the album they had finished just before I'd started the work on the console. But the first track had been remixed after I did the work because the band had called the studio told them that one of the players had left the group and would they please take that person's part out parts out of that one song. The Takeaway The upshot of all this was that Walter and the owner decided that they had to remix the entire record on their dime to make it match sonically. Unfortunately, neither of us can remember the name of the band. All I remember is that they were from the U.S. Northeast, that the double bass was played by a very accomplished Toronto session player, and that at the time, my only description of the band was that they sounded like a band you would hear at a Star Trek convention. So, what's the takeaway from all this? This. Just because you like a song, or even know it, doesn't guarantee that it was well-recorded, so using it as a playback material to check results when tuning a system may not give the desired result. This also applies to the quality of the playback material. I once finished timing and tuning a system in a corporate training theater and was quite pleased with the results, until I got a call from the manager, who had hired me, saying that his crew was not happy with how it was sounding. I went back the next morning and, like an idiot, started rechecking rechecking and second-guessing everything I'd done before speaking to the crew. After spending a couple of hours and not really getting any different results, I went into the control room to ask the crew what they were hearing. They then proceeded to play a truly horrible MP3 of Owner of a Lonely Heart by Yes. Now that song was certainly a popular PA test track when it came out in the 80s, and it may still be great, but that low-quality MP3 wasn't doing it any favors. And the fact that I had cleaned up the playback path by eliminating a bunch of timing and tuning errors in the system meant that they were finally hearing it accurately. Exactly how you determine that a recording is of sufficient quality to be used as a test track is a much bigger conversation. But the short strokes are to use tracks that are known to be that way, there are lists, and then make sure you're using a good quality playback format. Longtime audio professional Ike Zimbel is a top freelance wireless frequency coordinator and technician based in Toronto. Reach him via LinkedIn.